2020 has been an unprecedented year. Most of it has been spent in some state of lockdown or shelter in place. Yet even with most of the country effectively shut down, injustice has not lessened. In fact, the present state of the nation seems to have exacerbated it. One atrocious injustice overwhelms another to the point where it's difficult to keep track of what to be angry about now. Attempting to correct what they see as injustice, Christians of all traditions align themselves with political parties, often demonizing their brothers and sisters who align with the opposite party. Both groups of Christians say they value justice and worship the God of the Bible. But within the American church, there is a disturbing trend of individuals who are leaving Christianity entirely because, in their eyes, the Bible and the church just aren't focused enough on justice. If anything, the Bible is used to further perpetuate injustice, and the church ignores it. As if justice and Christianity cannot coexist, the pursuit of a just society has led many to abandon their faith. What should we make of this? Dr. Michael O. Emerson joins us to talk about his recent article, Goodbye Christ, I've Got Justice Duty. Together, we ask, how does individualism affect how justice is understood within particular Christian communities? Has justice been politicized? What is American Christianity's role within the current polarized political climate? How can the church pursue justice while maintaining a faithful witness to the kingdom of God? All that and more on this edition of Questions from the Pew. Questions from the Pew, the intersection of faith and culture. We're a forum for discussion on the issues that are ruminating in the minds of churchgoers, but that are often not raised from the pulpit. Here, no inquiry is off limits. Too long has the church shied away from grappling with tough questions and nuanced issues. No longer. We're your hosts. I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah. Quarantine. Good to see, good week to see you again over video chat. Hundred, yes, yeah, straight up. <laughs> It'll be, it'll be a great time when we can actually do these in person again. <laughs> yeah, one day. <laughs> yeah, truly. Uh, with us today, we've got a special guest. Uh, we've got Dr. Michael O. Emerson. Um, uh, how are you today? Well, I'm pretty good considering the crazy times we're in. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We're happy to have you with us. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. D- it's fun to be here. Dr. Emerson is professor and department head for sociology at University of Illinois at Chicago. Previously, he was provost at North Park University in Chicago. Uh, He received his PhD from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he focused on urban sociology and migration. He's authored or co-authored 15 books, such as Blacks and Whites in Christian America, How Racial Discrimination Shapes Religious Convictions, which actually won the 2012 C. Calvin Smith Book Award for Best Book Published by a member of the Southern Conference of African American Studies. And he also uh, co-authored Divided by Faith, Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America, which was awarded the 2001 Distinguished Book Award by the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. Uh, Much of his work focuses on urban sociology, race and ethnicity, and religion. So, Dr. Emerson, again, glad to have you with us today. Yeah, really looking forward to our discussion, our chat. 
Yes. Same here. Well, today we're talking about, um, this is our our second installment in the, this, I mean, last year we published an episode called Politics in the Church, um, and kind of wrestling with the issue of where should Christians find themselves in the political mm-hmm. sphere? Um, how should they be involved while still maintaining a faithful witness? And this is the second installment, I guess, of, of that, carrying on that same um, line of thought. Uh, and we're talking specifically uh, about justice. Uh, and in particular, um, we're going to be discussing your article that you had recently wrote um, for, was it for Christianity Today? Or I think it was on a blog for Christianity Today, yeah, I think. Yeah, the latter. Right. right. Ed Stitzer's yeah. The Exchange. That's ah. right. That's right. Yeah, and, we'll and it's entitled... Link. Yeah, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. It's entitled Goodbye Christ, I've Got Justice Duty, which the title alone, when I saw that, it's like, okay, I'm definitely reading that. <laughs> um, but for those of, uh, of our listeners who maybe haven't read the article yet, uh, which, hey, if you're listening and you haven't read it, you can go ahead and hit pause and give it a quick read. Um, but yeah, for those who haven't read your article, would you give a, maybe a quick summary of it and tell us what prompted you to write it? Yeah, sure. So the article's title pretty much says it. It's as people come to understand uh, importance of justice, however they might get to that point, they then, I think, often see in their churches that lots of people don't have that kind of passion that they suddenly have experienced, and they get a bit disillusioned. And um, so I'm writing about kind of this pattern of people just up and leaving the church, ultimately deciding, well, justice is what matters, and the church is not into that, so I have to leave the church. And I'm making a plea that, we'll talk about this more in a bit, I'm sure, but if you walk away from Jesus as you attempt justice, you will fail. So now why did I write that? Well, I wrote that because I had seen it over and over again. You know, as a working in universities, I was, a, as you mentioned, a provost at a Christian university and now teaching at a uh, state university, but you meet lots of Christians. <clears throat> I just keep seeing that pattern of younger folks, even folks that I've mentored through graduate school and on to their, them becoming professors, watching that pattern happen over and over. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that I've seen even from classmates that I have at, uh, even at Moody Bible Institute uh, from the undergrad. Um, yeah. Uh, and even it's a trend even I see within myself is, you know, I'm from a, a town of 5,000 people in West Michigan, kind of the Bible belt of Michigan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you come to the city and then obviously you see your eyes are open to these, to these things. Um, and yeah, there's definitely a tendency, uh, I guess, to swing the pendulum the other way. Um, I guess one thing that we wanted to ask is, um, I guess how how American denominations uh, and kind of that history play into this, uh, and by that we just mean a lot of times the mainline uh, mainline Protestant traditions like uh, Lutheran or Anglican, um, a lot of times there they have an understanding of kind of social issues and social justice, um, but fundamental churches and evangelical churches would say they're too far that way, and they're you know ascending yeah. to like a social gospel and they've, they've, you know, abandoned the actual gospel, that kind of thing. So I guess, is this, is this a trend that we're seeing throughout all of Christianity or is it just specific to kind of fundamental evangelical Christian 
uh, churches. So yeah, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, so around 1900, we had this massive split within at least the white Christian church into what you had described, mainline, progressive, much more concerned about issues of that's happening on earth. Like we got to have equality now here, not equality in the next world. And then uh, a real, I mean, the reason we got the term fundamentalism was then in reaction to that, okay, then we're going to stand strong in that we are not about that. That's not what the gospel is. And that's what we've dealt with here now for 120 years or so. So that does play big time into it. This, And that's a bit about my plea, both that people have then limited understandings racially and in terms of theology. That So they see the church they're in, maybe the denomination they're in, and decide, well, that doesn't fit me, and cast it all off, mm-hmm. even though there are other choices you could make and still be within Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. It's that uh, that that pendulum swing all the way to the other spectrum, uh, to yeah. the other side. Such a human um, tendency is uh, yeah. to do that pendulum swing. It's so hard for mm-hmm. us to just kind of move to the middle. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I think it's difficult, too, because sometimes we might not even know where we are on the in terms of the pathway of that pendulum swing. And so we, we almost um, swing all the way to the other end just to be safe and and to make sure, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit um, with the questions that are to come. But I guess one thing that I'll just kind of interject here is I think part of that pendulum swing, at least, so I'm just speaking personally from my own experience uh, is you see, you know, your eyes are opened or whatever. Um, you've start, you're starting to see the issues of race in America. We'll just be very specific with just the American situation. Um, and then you look back home and you see just a total, uh, I guess, like ignoring of that or, or uh, denial of it. And so there's a tendency to be like, hey, yo, like this is a real thing. And we actually, you know, <laughs> this is an actual thing. Uh, so, yeah, there can be like some frustration uh, or like, yeah, I mean, that's like kind of the, the, um, stereotype of like the angry social justice warrior or whatever, right. you yeah. know, who goes home and is, is yelling at everyone. Um, so I guess it's, it's tough. Cause I see there's two groups I interact with. There's like the people at home, uh, who are more like my conservative, um, family and, and friends and, and church folk. And then there's kind of this other group that I'm more friends with now, who's more progressive and younger and not white necessarily, um, and sometimes I feel like those two groups need to hear different messages and even both messages from the Bible, but they need to hear different ones. So I guess how does someone in my position, uh, kind of straddling these two worlds, I guess maybe you could speak into how, uh, I guess how to balance those like messages. Yeah, it's a great point. So I, as a sociologist, context is something we talk about all the time. And so like you, I I'm, grew up mostly in a little town of uh, only 1,700. And so when I go back to that town, uh, the things I do now, they make no sense to them whatsoever. And they just chalk it up to when people go to big cities, they they get liberal. And, and that's, right. that's just what you're doing. It's what we're missing, of course, is that the contexts are so different. So if you're from a small homogenous town, race is something that's far off it doesn't make a lot of sense it's something you see on tv that happens in cities like chicago right 
So one is to extend grace to each other and to understand contexts do matter. And, and certainly um, Paul talks about that biblically. We've got to understand the context to be able to speak to our folks and be the witness. So I, I think you have to just realize that. Those worlds are pretty tough to ever bring together and mm. understand they're different. They have different needs. Mm. Yeah. That's good. see repeatedly are Christians growing up, uh, quote, in faith defined as an individual relationship with Christ. So how does, uh, I guess that, how does that individual, individualism rather uh, affect how justice is understood within particular Christian communities? You know, a lot of times it means that justice isn't something that's part of the faith. It's, hmm. so it's uh, what secular people do or people who have fallen away from the faith. They focus on justice. God is redeeming the world one heart at a time. What does that have to do with trying to, you know, uh, make incarceration rates fair or try to resolve wealth gaps? That's 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 stuff to get you down the wrong track, sidetracked from the work of Christ. Mm. Yeah, when you have that view, obviously. Mm. Right. Yeah. Right. Is there any? I guess, um, is there anything from like the Bible? Uh, that you would say does, uh, I guess, does espouse being worried about incarceration rates and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and wealth gaps and that kind of, like, is, I guess, because I can see where, like, evangelical Christians might get that idea of, like, oh, like, we read Paul and, like, this is what he's concerned about. But Mm -hmm. I guess, like, is there any motivation from Scripture that, that, uh, that does warrant, you know, being concerned about those things? Yeah, throughout. And that's what's amazing to me, right? I, again, growing up in a small town, I would have thought um, I took the Bible very seriously and would say I take it, you know, literally. Mm. Um, and yet when I decided some point in the way, does the Bible actually say anything about justice? It's mind-blowing. Like, I mean, like God's, I am the God of justice. I, I reject you as a people because you don't care about justice. And it's over and over. And a lot of times people say, well, that's only in the Old Testament. It is not. Mm-hmm. It's in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting how the faith tradition we get puts on certain lenses for us, and we just don't see the other things that are there. And I would say the same if you're um, you know, in a, growing up in a progressive uh, mainline denomination. You often don't see about the call for actual conversion to Christ and that you, you have to give your life over to Christ and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think there. Yeah, the the thing that's troubling to me in this whole conversation is the call to, or not the call, but the tendency to um to create a dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah, and obviously the social context of the the two testaments are very different. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel was its own you know nation state. Whereas in the New Testament, um, we talked about this in our previous episode, previous episode, but they're a land under occupation, mm. and and yeah, the 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 thing to look forward to is when Christ returns to 
to set up the eternal kingdom, right every wrong, that sort of thing. But in the meantime, we're still here. And, and I think the, there's such a focus on New Testament ethics as, as there, you know, people should focus on that, but to the point where the Old Testament themes of justice and, and a just society that reflects God's nature um, is often ignored. Yeah. And I, I, thanks for bringing it up because it, I think it's such peril that we would do that. Obviously, God gave us the entirety of the word. It's one grand narrative. Can you imagine just knowing the New Testament without any Old Testament context? It wouldn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's unfortunate that we make that division and say, well, if it's only said there, then it doesn't apply to us today. It right. seems like bad exegesis. <laughs> yes. We're both ex- uh, exegesis students in grad school, so that's kind of our oh, hey. <laughs> that's our, wheel- <laughs> that's our wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> um, well, great. Well, yeah, we talked a little bit about, uh, or even Riker mentioned it in his question about like individualism, uh, in the sense that uh, it's kind of what we've been talking about, but that Christianity is about a personal relationship with Christ uh, solely or primarily, um, and yeah, it's kind of that personal ethics, moral type of thing. Um, so I guess, do you think that lends itself to categorizing justice as a political issue? Um, that is, you're either, you know, you're for or against it politically and it has nothing to do with faith. And then I guess if so, yeah, maybe this is too, too close, but I guess how do we bring that back into our own like personal spiritual, uh, experience and, or like our, our church community? So it definitely to do the first part of your question, it most yeah. certainly does. Uh, right in the book Divided by Faith that evangelical Christians have three cultural tools, tools that are based within their religious faith that they use to apply not only in their faith, but in interpreting pretty much all of life. So one is called accountable free will individualism, that focus on the individual, that you have the free will to make a choice, but you will be held accountable. How does social change happen? What matters? Well, relationalism is a second cultural tool. It says that because, you know, you are saved by faith with an individual relationship with Christ, then that gets transposed or generalized into understanding how the world works and how you make change and what you should be doing. It should be relationships. Now, those, of course, are vitally important. But the third one then precludes you from doing anything else it's called anti-structuralism. So justice would be seen as a structure. It's got very little to do with individual relationships, laws, policies, all those things. When we interviewed uh, evangelical white Christians, didn't apply to black Christians, they uh, use terms like those things are fake or they're facades or they're, they get you sidetracked from the mm. real faith. So justice it's definitely fits in that category for lots of mm. folks. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. One one thing I've heard, uh, yeah, because of that individualism understanding of Christianity, that like the the relationships are great and it's good to, I guess, uh, work towards justice through relationships. I th- I personally think it's really necessary because um, mm-hmm. our empathy usually, for better or worse, only extends as far as our eyeballs do. Um, so I guess just getting your eyes on things and and hearing personally from other people is really important but i've also heard that it's stifling uh because 
essentially it's kind of like a free pass like oh like i i do um i guess i do per, like pursue justice in my relationships but then i guess it's not necessarily adjust, like uh, addressing the entirety of the problem yeah um yeah so i don't let me so let know. me give an example so if if i somehow had the power to pass a law that said all moody students are ineligible to earn money so you know live some way but you can't make money and then wow. at some point along the way, we say, that just doesn't seem right. We need to change this. And I come along and, and then say, you know, I want to get to know you. I want to be friends with you. I want to make sure we're good. Hmm. I doesn't, it, it's not addressing what really caused the issue. Yeah. Right, And I right. think that's how lots of people feel. Mm. No, that's helpful, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, within even uh, certain traditions, I think they're, they're, Certain traditions find it easier to um, to look at faith in a more individualistic light, mm-hmm. or as in a more communal light. So I'm thinking specifically about um, the Black Church in America, um, especially in their um, in the way that they saw themselves as uh, the Israelites being liberated, you know, out of Egypt. Th- those themes are so common in the Black Church. Um, so I think in in that respect the idea of being saved into a community of faith is so much easier for them to grasp as opposed to um, the individualism that you normally see uh, in that that's prevalent in white evangelical churches um, and I think that I think that's partly where the divide is mm-hmm. like um, and so like with with people from from one side or the other they don't know why you know a uh, a a white Christian can vote a, a certain way. Well, it's because of the context in which they grew up, and it, yeah. vice versa. They don't know how to bl- a black Christian can vote for these policies. Well, it's because other policies surrounding it affect the community um, as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Well stated, and that's part of the problem with our long-term segregation from each other, fellow brothers mm-hmm. and sisters in Christ, perfectly willing to worship and separate. Uh, churches have separate denominations, have separate music places, and read different authors. And mm. Then we don't understand each other at all. Mm. And we mm. actually, and this again, uh, again to go back to this book, Divided by Faith, the reason it's called that is, for example, blacks and whites in, in the United States, as we know, are vastly divided. But black and white Christians, in every measure we looked at, are more divided than black and white Americans in mm. general. And it's actually because their faith is another place for that division to grow and to interpret what's going on in the world in very different ways, just as you noted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that's a little bit tough to hear. One, this is, this is just a question I was thinking of as, as you were talking. One thing we've talked about here is the complexity of like multi-ethnic churches, uh, because, there are some, so obviously there's this big push by some to like diversify the church and, you know, they almost kind of wear diversity as a badge of honor, uh, for their church. Um, but then there's others, uh, people I've talked to, um, who's, who are from minority groups who say, I want to be like with my people on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? Like I live in a, in a white world the whole rest of the week. I want to like go home on, on Sunday and like be able to be myself and not worry about things. I guess it's it's like this complex thing. Um, do you have any any thoughts on 
like multicultural churches um, or, you know, how that, that might help or hurt. Yeah. So I've actually written multiple books on, on that topic and studied it for the last 20 years. So let me say up front, you, you, you describe a very important dilemma. And I think the answer to that is there is room for both. There is room for hmm. homogenous churches that meet the needs that people are facing. And there is a need for multi-ethnic, multi-racial churches. Hmm. Um, those have been growing. So we've been tracking it since 1998. The latest round of surveys just happened a few months ago. And we've gone from 7% of congregations being defined as multi-racial, uh, 6% actually in 1998. So what is? how do we define it? We use a demographic term which is no single racial group is 80% or more of the congregation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you use that, just there's about 350,000 congregations of all different faiths in the U.S. To put that in perspective, there's about 10,000 McDonald's in the U.S. So you (laughs) get a sense uh, how many there are. Uh, So 6% in 1998, that's grown to 16% now. So it's, you know, it's still the small minority, but it's obviously Mm -hmm. more than doubled in the last 20 Mm -hmm. years. So I think one of the things we say is that there's value, there's multiple values in multi-ethnic churches. One is that as we have more and more multi-ethnic people or families, this provides a place for them to find a home. Another is it does begin to create, potentially, right, a, a unifying belief, a unifying sense of we are a group, even though we're different races, we are one group, we are members of this congregation we sing music together the conflicts that happen though you can guess so you know all the divisions that happen in the world come into these churches well what kind of music are we going to sing who's standing up front why does some group seem to get more voice than other groups and mm. on and on it goes right yeah well maybe let's uh let's take a break there um to to move into uh, a new segment that we're going to be uh, introducing in this episode, the Know Your Guest segment, and I we titled that that because I couldn't come up with anything more creative <laughs> than the Know Your Guest segment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just a just a series of, of five questions, just uh, so our listeners and and we can get to know you, Doctor Emerson, a little bit better. Mm, um, you ready? <laughs> All right. So number one, coffee or tea. <laughs> I laugh because I'm sitting here drinking hot chocolate. So, uh, oh wow! <laughs> so, so neither. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I like them both, but I would say coffee if I had to choose. Okay. And it, iced or hot? I hot. guess I like it hot. Okay. <laughs> um, question number two: What movie can you watch over and over again without ever getting tired of it? <laughs> There's a couple of them. We have, we call them uh, like the Emerson classics. So in our household, <laughs> families watch them over and over. One is called That Thing You Do, made by um, Tom Hanks. Yeah, it's oh, nice. yeah. I haven't seen that one. Right. It's like something that isn't a huge hit. Another one <laughs> is uh, same thing, not a huge hit, but it's uh, called Return to Me. And the reason we love that one is it's all based in Chicago. So you see a lot of places mm-hmm. that we know. Oh, and, nice. Yeah. I'll have to check that one out. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you grow up in Chicago? Because I, I think I saw I read in your bio that you had graduated from Loyola, right? Yeah, it's kind of weird. I was born in Chicago. I graduated from here. I live here now. I work here. But in the in-between times, I mostly 
well, for four years in Detroit, Michigan, so not too mm. far from the other side of the okay. state. And then my parents are actually from um, Minnesota, so mm. I was there from age four to 18. Nice. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> That wasn't part of the the question, so that's question <laughs> that doesn't count. Two, extra, two extra. point five. <laughs> um, question number three: Do you have any unique hobbies or hidden talents? <laughs> I'm quite sure I have no <laughs> hidden talents. Uh, unique hobbies. Uh, I'm pretty good at juggling, so I like to just walk around juggling oh. and showing people how to juggle. How about that? Uh, that's legitimate. <laughs> Did you ever do that in the quad? <laughs> I've done it. Everywhere. I went to I went to UIC for a year. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't done it there yet. I'll have to try it. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, question number four. Aside from this is a little bit more serious now. Aside from the books that uh, are in your field of study, sociology, what do you like to read, and why? Yeah, and this has been the same since I was probably in second, third grade. Is I love, love, love to read biographies. In fact. Um, by the fifth grade, I had read every biography in our school's uh, library, and I they would order extra ones so that I could keep reading them. I'd read about three, four, or five a week. Wow! What what the, why I think is um, it struck me that no matter how amazing people's lives were, it always ended the same. This is morbid, but they die, right? <laughs> and I it always I I love the perspective it gives. That it, I think it. It keeps you humble to realize you get a time on earth and you can do great things that God assigns to you, but your time ends, so use it wisely. And I like to read what how people have used their 60 to 80 years they get. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and then final question, what initially interested you in sociology? Yeah, okay, so here it was. It came to Loyola of Chicago. That was my undergrad. You have two campuses there, and you take classes on both. So one's on the north shore, the north side of Chicago, right on the water, and the other is downtown. At least when I was there, I had to go back and forth each day between classes that were on the two campuses. So I was majoring in psychology for no other reason than somebody told me I should. I didn't know what it was (laughs) or anything. But what struck me is when I would get off um, at the Chicago stop, the Chicago Street stop, Avenue, Mm not too far there from Moody, Um, you had on one side at that time, Cabrini Green, one of the poorest housing projects in the country and Mm -hmm. the largest, walk a few blocks towards where my campus was and I'd be a couple blocks away from the Gold Coast, one of the richest places on the face of the earth. I wanted to know how within a few block radius can you have such extremes of poverty and wealth and then of course, the people that lived in these two places look very different racially and such. Mm-hmm. I went and talked to one of my professors and they said, wow, it sounds like you want to study sociology. And so that's how I came to study it. Mm. Nice. That's great. Yeah. Chicago is definitely a fascinating case study. Uh, yeah, right? Like absolutely. I think we mentioned it in our first se- uh, our first season and we talked, um, I think we were reviewing black Panther when that f- had first come out and we mm-hmm. were talking about, um, all the racial aspects that went along with that movie. But I think I had mentioned like the red line going from South to North. It's just yeah. a, that's, that's, that's one track uh, on the Chicago's on Chicago's rail system. And you just see s- such a stark difference moving from the South side to the, to the far North side. Yeah. Let me add to that. Cause there's actually a, 
a professor that I got to hire at uh, North Park named Gwendolyn Purifoy, a sociologist. She studies that. So she's riding those train lines all day in the bus lines. Hmm. Some of the things she noticed, which I had never noticed, for example, on the north side of the same train line, there's a stop every half mile. On the south side, the poorer side, black side, oh, yeah. there's a stop every mile. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Another is she says, if you're, of course, we know it's mostly whites riding it on the north side. They get off at downtown, and as you keep going, mostly black. But she said if there are blacks on the train on the north side or downtown, they act one way until all the whites get off. And then they are much more likely to be talking to each other and opening up. Mm -hmm. So they have to play different roles depending on who's sitting on the train. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would take the red line. I used to live in Bridgeport, which is... Oh, on the south side, yeah. Yeah, it's on the south side, but it's kind of like the last stop before you get into more black neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I worked at Moody, obviously, which is kind of closer to downtown. So I'd be on the red line. And when we'd get to the Bridgeport stop at 35th, basically they would just, they'd part like the Red Sea. And it's like, this is your stop. We know it's your stop. And it was, <laughs> and I would walk right home. <laughs> she but, says that. Yeah. And they'll yeah. talk about that even after then. Like, yeah. of course, they're all going to get off there. Right. <laughs> humoring us in those um in those uh questions dr emerson especially that last question i feel like we could do a whole episode on, yeah. on that alone <laughs> yeah absolutely but uh yeah let's get let's dive back into the our, our main topic here um in your article you talk about people who act out of a quote race limited understanding and you had mentioned it um earlier in the first half of the episode will you explain what you mean by that yeah So race is such a powerful impactor on us. I say that we live in a racialized society, and there's only a couple of them. South Africa is another. That means that race is so structured into our laws, our policies, our understandings of each other that it impacts most everything that we do in one way or another, even when we're quite sure it doesn't. So if I'm in the struggle of looking at my church, and I'm caring about justice, and I'm thinking, ah, the church, this Christian, the Christian church just doesn't get it. I've got to move on. I've got more important things to do. People are still making that decision within a very limited scope of what Christianity is. So they're, if they're white, they're probably looking at one segment of mm-hmm. white Christianity and making it a decision globally about Christianity. Mm-hmm. And one of the points I make with one sentence in the uh, article is that Christianity existed far before whiteness ever did. So Christianity has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with whiteness. If it does, it's because it's been uh, bent and twisted in the wrong ways since. Mm -hmm. But to cast away a whole faith, you're not casting away the faith. You're casting away uh, a racialized version of the faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes good sense. I was a little confused by that because I think in that paragraph you kind of have a dichotomy of you know those who are denying or or downplaying justice, and then those who 
make it their god. And then, yeah, yeah. that middle sentence, I was like, is he referring to the first group or the second group? Uh, but it's kind of, I guess, it's more that second group where they're looking at a limited understanding of Christianity that's only essentially based on their experience of, yeah. for instance, white Christianity. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I guess, um, I guess kind of to, I don't know if broaden, but um, I guess to bring this to bear on the current political climate. Um, so this, this podcast episode is actually going to air the day after the election. So we're not Whoa. trying to impact how people vote. <laughs> good. Not, Very good. Yeah, we had a that. discussion about when should we publish it the day before <laughs> yeah. to, as a, to bring into the polls or the day after. <laughs> right. Let's go the day after. <laughs> yes. This is not, you know, we're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, but we did want to ask, I guess, how do you see American Christianity's role in interacting with American politics? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I go wherever you want with that, but yeah, just that interaction, I guess. So I'm sure you've accounted in your studies how complex that question is, because mm-hmm. you often will say, well, Jesus did not, uh, I mean, he was like, give to Caesars what is Caesars, but the rest of the time, let's focus on uh, what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. So that's usually used as the argument to stay out of politics. Mm-hmm. The critique then will be, but that wasn't a democracy. As we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, they were under occupation. Not a lot they could do unless they basically violently overthrow. Mm-hmm. So um, is it our responsibility as Christians to vote? Yes, of course. I mean, we live in democracy. We have to speak. I think our main, no matter what kind of context of government that we are under, I think our main call as Christians is to be a prophetic voice, to speak truth, no matter whether it's popular or not popular. Uh, we don't do that very well, but that is our call. Mm-hmm. And um, and then also to try to hold people accountable as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by prophetic voice, you mean you're, you're not talking about the the common the popular notion of seeing the future, but you're talking about you're hearkening back to the language of the Old Testament. Yes, uh, there, right? With exactly. The, the focus on on creating a just society. Okay. That's right. Yeah, a just society. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. I, I, you you men you mentioned the the responsibility of, of voting when you were uh, responding to that question, so so what would you say then as a follow up question, what would you say to the people who find the current political climate so divisive, and you know, neither option for example yeah. being good enough, and they just, um, I don't know for lack of a better word abdicate on the responsibility of the privilege of voting. Like what? What would you? Because I I've spoken with a lot of people who 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 are in that predicament. Yeah. Um. And they're very well meaning. Um. But yeah. What? How would you help them? People like that think through. You know that that choice. We have multiple problems in our country. So one is that we have this electoral college. Um. So if like, since we're all in Illinois as we're mm-hmm. recording this, it doesn't matter how the three of us vote the Democratic candidate will win every single time. And it's usually not even remotely close. So Democratic candidates and Republican candidates don't even candidate here. They already know it's, it's it w- they'd be wasting their money. So since we do it state by state, in most states, there's one or two exceptions, Nebraska and Maine, but uh, I think that that isn't a democracy, right? That's a republic. So one, we don't really have a democracy. And I think that's a disincentive to people. Unless you're in battleground states, well, then it matters a lot. Sure. Uh, 
Another one, of course, is that we have this two-party system. So I lived in Denmark for a while, and they have an eight-party system. Love the difference that that makes. So no party gets 50% of the vote. But when you have eight choices, they get a lot closer to what you might actually believe. And then what they do is proportional representation. So depending if one party gets 20% of the vote, they get 20% of the elected positions. Since nobody's the majority, though, they have to work together. Mm. which is what we mm. we have designed a system that it's in your disinterest to work together if anything if you ever do something you have to show it was your party and not the other party <laughs> right so it that's a defeatist thing and for us as voters it does there's just no way it captures the complexity of a nation of 330 million people and their values and wants and so we're all voting basically holding our noses and mm. choosing the lesser of two evils is how we often think of mm. it. Or, right. as I have done in the past, a vote third party. And you know the third party, no matter what, won't win. But you're making your statement that I don't agree with either. Mm. So yeah. it's it's a tough thing that we're in. And mm-hmm. I would love to see us change that. Why mm. do we have mm. to be limited to two parties? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I've said it before in, in previous episodes, but Christians especially end up being stuck between a rock and a hard place Absolutely. because both parties have policies that should be valued by Bible-believing, faithful Christians, but it, but also both parties have obviously downsides to them, and that's the difficulty with having, again, that, that two-party um, system dominating politics because in one way or in, in one respect or the other, you're not going to... F- a Christian who votes is not going to feel like maybe it was the the best choice. And then also there's, as we see in our country, there's a tendency to demonize by people by the way they vote. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not because they stand for the worst of the a party's policies, but it's because they're trying to vote for the best of the party's policies. Yeah. And obviously the other side can't a lot of times see that. Brilliant point. We cannot. And that's right. We, we definitely think how abhorrent that you could vote for that party, whatever party that is, because we do look Mm -hmm. at the negative sides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, we're racialized. And Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. Christians, we are so by race, so divided in who we vote for, not because we care about different issues, but I think we rank order them differently because of experience of our own communities. And that leads us down different paths. Definitely. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of this hearing both of you talk, I guess it, it seems, I guess, like really complex because it's like, okay, given the two party system and there's not like the greatest choice, you know, there's darkness in both party as Dr. Daniel Carroll would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's, so is that something Christians should be worried about is, uh, you know, maybe developing a further system beyond the two parties. Um, but I guess if, if you would ask the average person, me included, how we would do that, I would not have any type of answer. <laughs> you know? Right, and I'm not smart enough. I'm not a political scientist, but it, right. it would be talking to political scientists and to find mm-hmm. out what are the limitations that keep third parties from forming or at least being mm-hmm. viable. I mean, we have got the Green right. Party, you got some right, others, but right. they get one two percent of the vote. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I do think. I think mm-hmm. we're especially. It seems like it's gotten worse over time. These divisions, like mm-hmm. we used to have people kind of two candidates more sort of in the middle meaning one way or the other now it's to the extremes so the choices mm-hmm. seem even more abhorrent in a way right, right. Very good. yeah 
Well, uh, just as a final question then, um, what has to change, if anything, in the American Protestant Evangelical Church mm-hmm. if it is to both pursue justice and be a faithful witness to the kingdom of God? So I think the main thing is it has to be we have to be full gospel, whole gospel believers. We've divvied up the church into segments that believe different parts of the Bible and then just either skip over or patently disagree with other parts of the Bible. I don't, as Christians, that we don't have the right to disagree. We don't get to choose. If God says it, then we follow it. That's Christ's call for obedience. In fact, I was just reading this morning, you will show you, you love me by being obedient. To my commands. It's pretty serious. Um, to do that, the process is we do have to de-racialize, so different, and, and de-denominationalize. These are big things. We have to, just as we were talking about in politics, we have to try to start not from a point of distrust, like those Christians are barely Christian, but try to understand what biblically are they latching on to how is it different from what I am? How could we find a way to bring that together, the best of, of all mm-hmm. of these? If you could have, just to make it really boil it down to two cases, if you draw African-American and white Christians together uh, and started trying to come up with a theology that combines them, you would get much closer to the whole gospel. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, I think Thank that's you. a great word of unity, really. <laughs> Our ultimate call. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I think that, honestly, that's a good place to end. That's a good call to action, uh, especially for um, our listeners, many of whom are in church leadership Mm. uh, and trying to figure out, um, yeah, a a good way to lead their communities of faith um, while still very much pursuing justice that the the Bible and obviously God holds so dear uh, to, to his heart. Uh, Dr. Emerson, thank you so much for for joining us. Yeah, we really um, appreciate making carving time in in your schedule for this. Been a privilege, Um, and uh, to all those who are listening, thank you for the work you're doing. Are you are you currently working? uh, Just as a final question, are you currently working on any projects, or is there a place where our listeners can read more of your work, like the article that we were talking about today? Yes, we've been uh, last couple years doing what is the most extensive project on race and religion in, in the country. And it was started up as a follow-up to a study we had done 20 years ago. It's gotten much bigger than that. Uh, you can find a lot of that at a simple website called rjuc.org. It stands for Racial Justice and Unity Center. And um, if you sign up for the newsletter there, rjuc.org, in a couple weeks, you'll have access to something we've been developing we're pretty excited about. It's it's like a racial climate assessment. It's free, it takes about 15 minutes. Churches can do this. And you get uh, automatically, if you do it online, you get uh, a scorecard that comes back that says for each individual and for your church as a whole, here's where you're strong, here's where areas you might think about developing more. And we also have links to coaches that can work with you if you wish. Great. That's great. Well, and we'll leave links to that in our in our show notes, uh, so that way uh, listeners can can look at that. Great. Well, thank you again, Dr. Emerson, for for joining us. Yeah, been a privilege. And you, listener, thank you for listening. 
Uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to support us financially, you can always do so on Patreon. Uh, it's just as easy as going to www.patreon.com slash questions from the pew. And if you can't support us financially, please give us a, a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, that's just a great help to us, and it helps others find our podcast. Also, please comment and ask questions. Leave us a short voice message or a text message at 312-725-2995. This has been Questions from the Pew, a podcast in the World Outspoken Network. To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For Questions from the Pew, I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time. Bye.